That's fun. I, I can tell you this right now. Um, so, so with not only the music, but also the, the prayers and the, just some of the, the, the reading of Scripture and the comments, this, this is one of those mornings where it's like, man, th- th- this is the message. And so my message should be five minutes and done. It won't be, but it should be. So I don't want you to get like false expectations. Man, it, it is, when's the last time, this actually is exactly the message, when is the last time you were completely undone when you thought about how God mercied you? When is the last time that your chin quivered when you thought about God's goodness in your life? See, I think for many of us, what ends up happening is we, we get into life, we get, we get, well, life happens, and life bogs us down, and we lose sight of the mercy and the goodness of God. We, we, lose, we lose sight of what it is that is the grace of God. And, and today, as we look at the book of Malachi, that that is the message of Malachi. The people had lost sight of the grace of God and what it meant for them. And so today, that's what we want to look at. And I was going to announce that everybody makes the same joke with the good Italian prophet Malachi. We're in Malachi, so go ahead and take your Bibles, go to Malachi. This is, um, this is the, the final, final, final. I'm talking fancy talk now. I've been working on my French accent. Um, this, is, this is the last message in the Minor Prophets. Um, I have, I don't have mixed emotions. I would say I have mixed emotions. Is that true? I'm excited that this is the final message of the Minor Prophets for two reasons. This is, I love what this book communicates. That's the first one. The second one is trying to preach an entire book in one message has proven to be very difficult. Um, the good news is the summer I get to do it with the book of Revelation, so stay tuned. We'll see how that goes. I still owe my child. <laughs> that boy. Anyway, context, Malachi. Hey, you know what? Let's pray. You okay with that? Okay, good. You guys awake? Okay, good. Because I'm about to yell at you for about 20, 25 minutes. So, okay, good. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thanks for joy. Thank you, thank you for gladness and, and hope. Uh, Lord, there is absolutely no question in my mind that there are people who have walked into this place and it has been a lousy week. And there's people who have walked into this place, it has been a lousy morning. God, I ask that in our moments together, as we look at your word, that, that as only you can, as only your spirit can, that, that the Holy Spirit would lift us up, that he would lift our, our drooping hands and he would strengthen our feeble knees so that we might be encouraged and reminded yet again of what it is that we have because of your grace. Lord, undo us. Undo, I... I um, I'm actually a little nervous to pray that. I, I pray that, that you would undo us. That you would remove from us any, um, <laughs> be careful how I pray this, any dignity that we would cling to that would keep us from falling on our faces before you. Any, any, uh, any Michael in us as we looked at David and and chastised him for behaving foolishly by dancing as he rejoiced before your ark. Lord, I pray we would dance like David today. And that today wouldn't just be the only time that uh, our lives would change because of your word. Thanks for your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, context. 170 years ago, 
for America, we were barely a country. Uh, as it pertains to the book of Malachi, 170 years ago, the, the country of Babylon had come in and overthrown um, the, the country and had carried away the people into exile. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago, how all of the, uh, the, the Hebrews were carried back to Babylon and, and they were there. And after being there about 70 years, um, there was a change in leadership and no longer was Babylon in control, but now Persia was in control. And, and Cyrus, King Cyrus came in and he was like, listen, you go back to your cities and you rebuild it. And you remember Darius, who was the next king, actually paid for the project And so we have all kinds of accounts of the children of Israel returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall, and to rebuild the city. And so if you were to read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you were to read the books of Haggai and Zechariah and Zephaniah, you would find accounts of what was happening as they rebuilt Jerusalem and they rebuilt rebuilt the temple. Um, I find it very interesting that, that if you read through the book of Nehemiah and you get to chapter 9, the people stand in front of God himself and they make this, this covenant, they make this vow, they actually take their seals and they, they seal, so that it's almost like a pinky promise today, that we, we promise, we absolutely promise, and here are the things they promised. We promise to give God first and best from everything we have. We, we promise to tithe so the temple will remain a priority, and we, we promise to honor God in our marriages. So that's what the, as, as the conclusion came to the building and rebuilding of the wall, the temple, and the city of Jerusalem, that's what the people had promised. They're going to give God first and best, or they're going to be consistent in their tithes so the, so the temple can, can remain um, in its current condition, and they would honor God with their marriages. <clears throat> it didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. In fact, that Nehemiah 9 is when they make that covenant, when they make that promise. You fast forward to Nehemiah 13, and they have broken all three. In fact, Nehemiah, let me, let me read this verse. This is Nehemiah. Don't turn there, but trust me, it's there. I'll give you the reference. Nehemiah 13, 25. You can look it up later. But this is the greatest counseling verse in Scripture. Nehemiah 13, 25. This is how Nehemiah dealt with the people breaking their covenant with God. It says this, I rebuked them. And I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. So, um, <clears throat> my new philosophy of pastoral counseling. How's that for an accountability partner, eh? Um, that's how Nehemiah dealt with them. But here in Malachi, this is how God deals with them. And as, as has happened throughout all of the minor prophets, God has called his people out, and he calls them out for becoming bored with grace. I don't know another way to say it, becoming bored with grace. What does it look like to be bored with grace? What are some evidences that you may be bored with grace? I'm going to warn you in advance that these may sting a little bit as we walk through the book of Malachi together, because these get personal. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6, that's where we'll look at our first evidence that you might be bored with grace. It says this, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father, slave honors his master. This is God speaking. So if I am a father, where is the honor that's due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect that is due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, well, how have we shown contempt for your name? Come on. God says, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? 
by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, isn't that wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? You try offering those things to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So one of the evidences that we have become bored with grace is that we try to give to God as little as possible. These folks are showing up when they're supposed to bring the best of their herd, the best of their flock. They're taking the lame and the diseased ones. They're looking at their flock and saying, see, that one, that one's pretty healthy. That one will make me some money at market. But this one I could do without. So here, God, you can have that one. They're trying to give God as, as little as possible. There's stories for any of you that have been in the mission field and, and, or even in church for a lengthy period of time. You've heard the stories of our, our missionaries who are, are busy serving God. They've sacrificed much and they're overseas and they're working hard and, and they get a care package from one of the churches back in the States, back home. And, and what do we send them? The computer that's 10 years old because we got a new one? Oh, we don't need that anymore, but you can certainly use it. Well, if it doesn't work for you, why is it going to work for them? But, but that's kind of our mentality at times. And God says, no, you, you don't remember grace if that's your spirit towards me. If you can barely give as little as possible, if you're trying to, to just eke it by. So for us, I mean, we, we, we're required to, and Lord willing, as a, as a good um, re, um, resident of, of the United States and of Maryland, you do give a percentage to your country and to your state but we offer less to God's work. You spend your time watching football, baseball, food network, cooking channel, DIY network, and yet you have absolutely no time to read God's word. You, you love your hobbies, whatever those look like. Could be golf, hunting, Knitting, it, it, it could be home renovations, it could be a million of things, but, but you love your hobbies, but, but you have no time for the spiritual disciplines that God's called you to in prayer and study, evangelizing, service. God says, you want to know that you've become bored with grace? Well, then you're trying to give as little as possible. Let's continue on chapter 2. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 11. God says he sees a boredom with grace in their relationships, and what's happening is they've become selfish in their very closest of relationships. Verse 11 of chapter 2, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. He says, okay, so, so what's happening right now is my men, my, my people have taken a fancy to, to the foreign women who are worshiping other gods and they began marrying these foreign women who worship other gods as opposed to the godly women that he has surrounded them with. And what it did for them is what it does for us. It leads you to a trap. And, and this, the idea in the New Testament of not being unequally yoked in relationships, it doesn't just apply to dating and marriage. It applies to business relationships as well. 
But, but in here, in this context, being unequally yoked isn't a suggestion. It's not God saying, don't be unequally yoked because I've seen it go bad, but you know, that's just a suggestion. No, that's him saying, don't do it. Because if you, if you join yourself, and in this particular context, if, if husband follows Christ and, and wife follows Buddha, well, you know what? Let's just, let's just cut to the chase and be honest. You have enough opportunity for problems and strife in marriage without that. Why are you choosing to add that? God's trying to protect his own. And he says, you have forgotten the grace that I've spilled out for you by being willing to just kind of wink at that. In fact, what I would argue is that not only did the men um, have a fancy for the, the pagan women and start marrying the pagan women, I believe that many of the men had made marriage an idol in their heart. And they didn't care who they were marrying as long as they got married. In Bible college, we used to call that senioritis. You, as, as a senior at Bible college, I mean, the, the idea is if you graduate from Bible college and you're not at least engaged, then you are just destined to a life of singleness, which is crazy. But it's, that's the thought. And you know what you see happen that senior year? Some of the weirdest couples get together. Because it's become an idol. Even more so, and I need to be very careful, and I want to make sure you hear what I say and not what, don't, don't take any implications. Don't, don't take it like I'm implying something, but look at verse 16. This is important that we deal with this because God does. And the NIV translates verse 16 this way, that the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on guard and don't be unfaithful. He says, what's happening in your, I'll call it ignorance of grace, is that you have become so selfish in your closest of relationships that you're ignoring the very promises that you have made to your spouse. And, and, and so what has happened is it undermines the very picture that marriage is meant to be. See, I think sometimes what we end up thinking, going back to the whole marriage as an idol, we end up thinking that marriage is for me. It's for me. So even when you go to a wedding at times, it's for me. And, and, and what's lost in the wedding is this. No, no, marriage is a picture of the greatest love that has ever been shown. It's a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And, and when divorce happens, because we no longer get along, a divorce happens because you no longer make me happy. And what we're doing is we're telling the world that that's what God's love looks like. He's going to love you dependent upon how you meet his needs. Um, common term today is irreconcilable differences. Yes, Stephanie and I have many irreconcilable differences. But we're committed to each other. Because it's not about me and it's not about her. It's about picturing God's perfect love for an irreconcilably different type of people. And so the, the fact that Stephanie loves me in spite of all my warts and wrinkles. I don't have warts, so don't ask where they are. Right? It's a, it's a saying. <laughs> but the fact that she loves me in spite of those things is a picture of Jesus loving me with his persistent mercy in spite of me. And because of his love for me, He's changed me. 
So, uh, uh, just let me do this. Couples don't fall out of love. That would be true if love was just a squishy feeling that you got or butterflies in the stomach. That may stop. Couples don't fall out of love. You choose to love or to not love. And so when you cease to choose to love the other person, then what you have done is chosen yourself above that person. Um, That is not an all-at-once thing. Satan's not that stupid. Satan, the way it doesn't work is it doesn't work where today you guys are all like, everything's great, everything's wonderful, we have the perfect marriage, and then tomorrow you file for divorce. That's not how it works. What Satan does is he continues to noodle around in the little things. There's a verse in Song of Solomon that talks about the, the, the little foxes are the ones that spoil the vines. The picture is you look at this great vineyard, and it's, it's growing wonderfully, but all of a sudden you start noticing some of the vines begin to shrivel up and die, and you have, you have no idea what's going on. Why would that possibly happen? Well, it's because these tiny little foxes that you can't see because they're so small, they're under the vines. They're, they're running through the vineyard, and they're just nipping off the bottoms of all the vines, and they're shriveling up and dying. See, it's, it's not these big, bad, scary wolves that come in to ruin the vineyard. It's those little foxes you've got to watch out for. It's the communication in your marriage. It's the giving each other the benefit of the doubt. It's choosing your spouse over yourself over and over and over again. So my marriage counseling, real deep, it's actually marriage counseling to myself. Repent. Own your sin. Stop trying to be right. Choose the best for your spouse and not for you. See, what's happened in the, in the midst of these people is that they have become so ignorant of grace, so bored with grace, it's become so old to them that they no longer remember that God loved them in spite of who they were. And so now they were being selfish in all of their relationships. Chapter 2, verse 17, another evidence of, of lacking the understanding of true grace. Chapter 2, verse 17, <clears throat> God says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Well, how have we wearied him, you ask? You've wearied him by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? So so God says, you want an evidence of a lack of understanding of grace? Is that you continue to rage against God. Your your heart rages against him, or it whispers against him. Regardless, it's, it's you are against God. You continue to say, man, the evil are in control. God must be asleep. God must think everything's okay. I can't believe God's letting this happen. Where is God? Why doesn't he? How come we? And that's not just asking God hard questions. That is just pushing and pushing and pushing and nagging and nagging. I mean, you, you you go on the street someplace and do that to somebody, you're going to get popped in the mouth. You do that to God, and you expect him just to sit there and take it. And here's the crazy part. The craziest part is that our heart rages against God or whispers against God, and, and Proverbs chapter 19 tells us that your own foolishness is what brings you to difficulty and to ruin. And when that happens, then you look at God and go, what did you do? So, so your, your own foolishness brings you to ruin, and then your heart rages against God. No, man, you did it. You made foolish choices. So, so, so God is asking a very tough question here. He's saying, why do, you, why do you always question my character when you don't understand something that's happening? See, it, it, it's not asking God the whys. It's when you start accusing him in his character. 
When you accuse his character, that's an evidence that you've become bored with grace, or at the very least, you don't understand what grace really looks like. Chapter 3, verse 8. This one's only slightly more awkward than the marriage one. God says this, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God's response, in tithes and in offerings. See, you're under a curse. Your whole nation is under a curse because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room for you to store it. What's another evidence of a misunderstanding of grace or a a boredom with grace or an ignorance of grace, another evidence of it is that you are not making God your first priority. So, so okay, uh, preaching on giving. Uh, okay, let me, let me make sure I do this the right way. It's in God's word, right? Right? Okay, thanks. Hello? Anybody home? This isn't Frank like, okay, it's time for a fundraiser. Now, I, I would... <laughs> everything in me is like, no, we're fine. But I don't want to say that because when people at church here, we're fine. They're like, oh, cool. I don't need to give. That's, that's not what we mean. What I mean is this. The reason I'm talking about it isn't because we're being driven by a need. The reason I'm talking about this is being driven by scripture. So will a man rob God by holding back his tithe? The tithe in the Old Testament was the very first 10% of everything they had. So when they had wealth, they would give 10% of it. it was a, and what's interesting is we look at that, we're like, yep, it was 10%. Actually, no. If you actually read the Old Testament, 10%, that was just a starting point. The actual amount that the, the children of Israel would give on a yearly basis was actually more between 23 and 27% if you added in all of the festivals and feasts and the like. So some people are like, okay, yes, in church, we give 10% because that's what it says. And then other people say, no, we don't have to give 10% because we're not under the law, we're under grace. And, and you know what? I'm going to agree with that. We don't need to give 10% because we're not under the law. We're under grace. I hope you're still listening. Because when you understand grace in the New Testament, grace always intensifies the law's demands. Look at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus starts talking, oh, you've heard not to murder. No. Grace says don't murder, and if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. See, it takes the law and intensifies it. Oh, you've heard, don't commit adultery. Good job, I'm glad you didn't do that. However, you look on someone with lust in your heart that isn't your spouse, And you've already committed adultery. The law is intensified by grace. So so, so I believe strongly that that grace's demand, as you read the New Testament, the grace's demand is generosity. 10% is a great starting point. But the point actually isn't even the amount. The point is the heart. Because what these people are doing is they're, they're holding it back because God's not my first priority. See, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my, my paycheck and I need to take care of this, 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 okay? And now God gets a little schmidge here. Well, oh, oh, Frank, I see how this works. Church always does this. Pastors always do this. They, they always like, oh, you got to make sure you give. Okay, hold on. God doesn't care what you bring. 
Psalm 51, one of the greatest psalms in Scripture, David is crying out to God. He's like, listen, if you wanted sacrifices, I would bring them. But you don't want my sacrifices. You want my broken and my contrite heart. God doesn't want your sheep. He wants your heart. And an evidence that he has your heart is that you're not holding anything back. An evidence that you understand grace is that you're going to give him every sheep he actually wants because he is your first priority. Chapter 3, verse 13, our final evidence that perhaps we're, we're missing out on understanding what grace is. Chapter 3, verse 13 says this, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. But you ask, well, what have we said against you? You've said this, it's futile to serve God. What, what, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put, the God, put God to the test, they get away with it. One of the evidences that we are bored with grace is we can't see past right now. It's vain, it's empty to serve God. The bad people are winning, the good people are losing. It's, so, it's empty. Well, man, I, I, why should we even waste our time? Why should we even do this? Think, think about this for a second. I hope the answer is no. Let's go with everybody just say no, even if it's not the answer. Would you say that to your spouse? Oh, it's such a waste of time to hang out with you. Not without at least one black eye. Oh, you are such a bore. No. And yet we say it to God and think he's okay with it. What more does God have to do for you to get your attention? So I'm going to ask you, do you you see signs of this in your life? Do you see signs or evidences of the fact that, that you're giving God as little as possible, that you are selfish in your closest of relationships, that your, your heart is raging or at very least whispering against God, that, that God isn't your first priority and that you're stuck in the now and you can't see what God could possibly do for you in the future and what plans he has for you and what hope he has for you? It may not be all of them, but even one of them is an evidence that 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 we're slipping away from being enamored with grace. So, so how is it that we become bored with grace? How does this happen to us? Man, do, is, are you saying that we, we just need a fresh dose of grace? No. We don't need a fresh dose of grace. Thinking that means we've become unaware of what grace actually is. Grace is constant. So instead of a fresh dose of a a fresh outpouring of grace, we need to understand grace better. We need to see it for what it is. So what is it? Well, you you know me now, and and I've become this guy who tries to define everything in a new and creative way. I don't know why I started that. There's so much pressure. I'm just kidding. Um, What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the standard theological and correct biblical answer. But if I'm going to define grace as it's laid out in the book of Malachi, this is how I'm going to define grace. Grace is being set free by the unearned love of an unchanging God. Being set free by the unearned love of an unchanging God. 
So, so I'm going to break that into those three parts right there. So we're going to go, being set free. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us the picture of what it means to be set free. Chapter 4, verse 1. Malachi is talking really bad news out of the gate here in verse 1. He says, surely the day is coming. It's going to burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root, not a branch will be left for them. That is bad news in case you're keeping score. Nothing good is about to happen. Everything is about to be burned up. There's going to be great justice and great judgment, and every single one of us is going headlong towards that judgment, just like the rest of mankind. Every single one of us are sinners who are are heading face first into that judgment, but... Verse 2, for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and you will frolic like well-fed calves. See, but for you that fear God, there there is grace, there is no condemnation. Our mourning has been turned into dancing. And, and it's, it's, it's this picture of you're heading straight, you're, you're all like minions heading down into this judgment, and we're all marching towards the judgment, and, and out of nowhere there's this, this moment where God reaches down and rescues you from that death march. It's being set free. And how do you respond when you're set free? Oh, that's pretty cool. You would think so based on some of our responses to the things that God has done within this place. Right? Hmm. You know, God's pretty cool and all. Well, my friend, you don't, you don't understand grace. You, you certainly don't understand what it means to be set free. You want a picture of what it means to be set free? Let's do this. Let's take three kids under the age of eight, and let's put them not in a minivan. Oh, no, no, no. We're going with a sedan. Very little room. And we're going to ride in that car for 10 hours. We're going to stop twice, once for gas and once because somebody's driving us crazy. Then we're going to get to the end of the 10-hour journey, and the only thing that's going to be in front of us is a big field. What do you think those three kids are going to do? I'm free! And they're going to be taken off running around. Do they need toys at that moment? Oh, no, they just need to be out of the car. I bet you they're like, they're, they're like way apart from each other too. We don't want anything to do with anybody because they're so bound up. Then the illustration that Malachi uses is this. He says, you're going to go out and you're going to frolic like a well-fed calf. See, what happened during the winter months is they would take their cattle and they would stick them into the, into the barns and they would keep them tightly enclosed and they would feed them and they very rarely would get out because of the harsh winters. But as soon as spring came, those young calves who had never tasted freedom before would burst out of those gates and it would be like this crazy YouTube video video that we watch. Kicking and frolicking and running around. I mean, have any of you seen a frolicking calf? I, I thought I was seeing one this morning while my hair was all excited. I'm like, I have an illustration of the things like, dee, dee, dee. I'm like, guess not. That was fun. Rats. Being set free. Being set free is like being released from jail. Grace is receiving that freedom. It's, it's what we don't deserve in place of what we do deserve. We're rescued. We're set free. And we're set free by the unearned love. Look at chapter 1. We're going back to, to chapter 1, verse 2. <coughs> Excuse me. 
We're being set free by the unearned love. Verse 2, chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord. I'll stop right there. (laughs) Shouldn't that be enough? I have loved you. The, the, The verb tense there for you grammar people. Then the perfect tense, which means it's a past action with ongoing results. I have loved you. I have loved you. I'm, I'm talking history here. I want you to think back how I have loved you, children of Israel. I, I created everything. I created you in my image. And when things went badly and the world continued to rebel against me, I took one man. His name was Abraham. And I promised him a son. And he had a son whose name is Isaac. And then he had another son whose name is Jacob. And since that very moment, my children, I have done nothing but lead you, be present with you, provide for you, protect you, discipline you like a daddy would his child, and bring you home. I have loved you. Person who is sitting at Uniontown Bible Church this morning, God has loved you. God has cared for you. He's given you gifts of common grace. Sunshine on your shoulders. Oh, no. Makes me happy. No, sorry. <laughs> Hate when that happens. Um, <laughs> um, sunshine on your forehead. Um, no, uh, rain. Laughter. Family. Friends. Beautiful sunsets. God has loved you even more than that. God placed you in the presence of somebody who knew and loved Jesus Christ enough and loved you enough that they opened their mouth to tell you about him. Oh, I've never had that happen. Oh, good, you're here. God loves you. But he gets even more specific. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? They're oblivious to God's obvious love for them. How have you loved us? And God's response is this. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, that Esau I've hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to admit right out of the gate This is one of those theological moments in Scripture that many, many, many trees have given their lives for in the writing of many, many books. But but I think if we try to dive into that too much and get into the, oh, so God chose Jacob and not Esau, I, I think we miss the beauty of the very simple point that's there. You want proof that I have loved you, Jacob? If anybody in your family deserved my love, affection, and outpouring of grace, it wasn't you, Jacob. It was your brother Esau. And yet in in an amazing moment, amazing moment that came about as a result of the deception of Jacob. In spite of Jacob's deception, God demonstrated his love for him. Deuteronomy chapter 7, let me read verses 6 through 9 to you. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, because you were actually the fewest of all the people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, and he keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So you have done absolutely nothing to earn the love of God. You have done absolutely nothing to earn the love of God. How have you loved us, God? Well, Romans 5 tells us while we were still sinners, while we were still wayward and alienated from God, while we were dead in our sins, while we were blinded by our sins, while we were morally bankrupt, There was nobody choosing us to succeed here, folks. There was nobody picking us first for the kickball team. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. How have you loved us, God? God loved us and sent his son. And his son died for us, not when we were all rosy and wonderful and in a great mood. His son died for us when we were at our worst. And you did nothing to earn it yourself. And there is incredible freedom in this. Because if you did nothing to earn the very favor and love and affection of God, you can do nothing to lose it. Because it's his to give. We've been set free by the unearned love of an unchanging God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. This is a theological truth. This is a doctrinal truth. This is an amazing uh, attribute of who God is. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Hear the words of God. He says this, I, the Lord, do not change. That's just perfect right there. You can stop right there and be amazed by that right there. I, the Lord, your God, I don't change. He never has. He never will. He always has been, always will be, and always is the great I am. There's never a past tense to that. There's never, there's never a need for the future tense for that because it's always present tense. I am. But what's crazy about this attribute, what's amazing about this attribute is that this attribute takes on an incredible meaning when it's found within the context of our wicked wayward hearts. In Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord your God. I do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. What God is saying is, because I don't change, even though, and forgive me, you're a moron who constantly questions me, my love, my affection for you, who constantly rebels against me every way you can imagine and then some that other people imagine for you, because you continually run wayward, because you continually turn your back on me. I am the Lord, I don't change, and that's why your feet are on the floor this morning. That's why there's air in your lungs this morning. That's why you enjoy the wonderful gifts that I've given you. It's not because you deserve it. No, 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 no. it's because of grace. It's because God never changes. When's the last time you were undone by the grace of God in your life? When is the last time you were undone by the reality that you have been set free by the unearned love of an unchanging God? (laughs) 
If we got that, if we understood that, if we were amazed by that, our, our service would be absolutely radical when we left this place. Our relationships with each other would be growing, they'd be more faithful. Our faith would be stronger, our giving would reflect God's desires, not our own desires, and our walk with Jesus would be that much sweeter. We have been set free by a grace that we could never fully comprehend. Are you undone? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity to know you despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite the fact that we have found ways to ignore you and avoid you around every corner. Um, yeah, the word wretch is in front of me. God, that doesn't even come close to fully describing the, the darkness of my heart. Lord, I ask that in this moment you would cause us to be undone, to be reminded again how wonderful the gift of grace is. Pray for the one here who doesn't know you. Lord, I ask that in this moment they would come face to face with the reality of how much you love them. Lord, may they come to know and love Jesus Christ. Lord, thanks for loving us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.